and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, thank you for, for this. Thank you for the teaching that's about to come. Thank you that our hearts were lightened this morning with humor. And let us stay in a position and posture of open and receiving with joy the teaching that is about to come to us. And we need it. We all need it desperately. And we thank you for this time together. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, you astonish us. Mm -hmm. And we're so thankful for your love. And your teaching today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kim. That was great. It was. I mean, it's every, sometimes we have to. You guys are a little from oh, it's my fault? Are you, it's my fault? Yeah. That's, that sounds just like the garden, right? Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Finger pointing, finger pointing. Okay. Well, guys, it's good to uh, be here this morning. It's good to um, uh, not be teaching a, a room of strange youth, you know. Uh, and it's so good to know that we that we survived it. Yeah, but I'm definitely getting too old for for that. I, no, no offense to any um, real soldiers, but I feel like I did a couple couple tours in Nam uh, the past couple weekends. <laughs> Was that good? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. All right. All right. So the Church of Philadelphia. They, they say it's a mistake to judge a book by its cover. Wikipedia says this idiom is a metaphorical phrase that means one should not judge the worth or value of something by its outward appearance alone. In other words, content and character and not just the cover of something is going to give us more give us a more accurate assessment of the thing that you are uh, perhaps evaluating so remember that the next time you uh, tune into the news feed or plug into the social media matrix uh, remember that the that instagram uh, TikTok, snapchat is not telling you the truth now that i've gotten that off my chest Again, you don't judge a book by its cover. If we've learned anything in the study of the seven churches, this is the beautiful truth that we've learned, and hopefully we're beginning to embrace, uh, embrace even, even more. 
What I love about the, the letters to the seven churches is that Jesus clearly, clearly has a different way of, of assessing churches. He, has a, he has, clearly has a different way of assessing strength and weakness. And, and, and in fact, you take the two churches in Revelation that have no positive qualities mentioned about them in the text. Uh, Sardis, who uh, John talked about last week, and Laodicea, who John gets to talk about next week, which is super fun. They are churches that appear to be uh, very impressive from an outward perspective, right? If you look at them from a cursory uh, investigation, they, they appear impressive. Sardis has the reputation of being alive. They have lots of activity in their church, all the programs, the outreach, the multiple avenues of discipleship, and yet Jesus deems them dead. And all I can say to that is, dang, <laughs> that's a bummer. Laodicea is rich. They have a budget for everything, apparently. They have need of nothing, and yet Jesus deems them uh, destitute. And again, I say to that, dang. And then you compare them to the two churches with no negative qualities, Smyrna and Philadelphia, uh, who are churches that are harassed and churches that are helpless. They appear weak, and yet Jesus has nothing but praise and promise for these particular people. And if that's true, if this is what Jesus is saying to these churches, we ought to really listen carefully to why. Why does Jesus assess the church in these particular ways? Well, again, the first lesson we're reminded of, you cannot judge a book by its cover. From our Lord's perspective, which ought to be the thing that holds the Christian sway most, according to Jesus, the strongest are the weakest, while the weakest apparently are the strongest. The strongest are the weakest, while the weakest apparently are the strongest. Those familiar with the language of the kingdom know that the Bible speaks highly of weakness. I'll rattle, I'll rattle off some scripture for you real quick to uh, prove my point. Jesus, who has all authority on he in heaven and on earth to say whatever he wants to say, and we should take that to heart, says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Paul, when he is writing to the Corinthians, he's talking about a particular infirmity, a thorn in his flesh that he's asking God to deliver him uh, from. He tells us what God told him and what he's learned in the process. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, But he said to me, God's speaking to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, here's what, here's what Paul learned. He said, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul is a man who's learned to celebrate his weakness and see the power of God at hand and at work in his life. You see, in the kingdom of God, spiritual weakness is held in high esteem. 
and something worth mentioning that God is not against winning. We don't always have to lose, but God is not against winning. It's just, when we read the text, it's just that he has an entirely different perspective and posture around winning. Again, some more scriptures I can rattle off at you. Um, If you want to be first, which everybody wants to be first, what does Jesus say? Then you've got to be last. Matthew 19. If you want to be great, what is, everybody wants to be great, what does Jesus say to, in Matthew 20? He says you have to be a servant. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. And I love the way Paul puts it to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 13. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Death poverty, and loss. It sounds grim, but again, God is not against, and I need to make this case, God is not against life, wealth, and the proverbial win. Plenty of God's people live, obtain riches, and win, but Scripture is quick to point out and remind us that we must remember how you get there for the glory of God. You can get there for the glory of man, or you can get there for the glory of God. And I love what Hebrews chapter 11 says. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11 features a bunch of people who are uh, heroes of the faith. And in chapter 11, verse 32 through 34, we get this beautiful picture of what it looks like for God's people to win with kingdom principles. And it says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me, fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and listen, listen to this, were made strong out of what? Weakness. We're made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. They won. And they celebrated in such spectacular ways. But the way in which they won matters to God. Do you see that Scripture is really questioning where our dependency lies? Do we really trust God? To really believe in his power for, over our lives? Or are we trying to do it in our own strength? I think that's just a human struggle. How many of us are saying, well, I don't need any help. I, I got this. I can do this all by myself. I don't need any help. Well, God celebrates those who recognize their helplessness and their cry for help from God. What, we lo- what I love about the people of God and in, in, in scripture is that they do not win with better weapons, brute force, and superior strategy. No, Israel is most compelling to me, and they're most successful when they turn to God for help and cry out to him. What we see with Israel is when they won, they did so by allowing the Lord to turn their weakness into strength. And that's the story of scripture. God is trying to tell us where our strength really lies. Which brings us to the church of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a really cool church. Um, 
I'm so happy that John has the five churches that are, have all the problems, and I get the two churches that, ha, that, that are praised by the Lord. But, but, but you know, I, I want some sympathy this morning, so I want you to, I want you to know that it hasn't been easy uh, teaching these two churches, Smyrna and, and Philadelphia. And that's all for John, because uh, we, we constantly have a, a little bit of teaching competition about what's, har- what's harder um, to, to teach. But when you look at Philadelphia, there's this real beautiful picture. There is, um, there's an assumption that their life and their doctrine is congruent with the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a, it's a noteworthy church for that fact alone. Apparently what they preached was evident in what they practiced. Uh, Their lives matched up with what their lips were saying. There was not hypocrisy in their midst. And I love at the end of verse 8, Jesus gives this really interesting assessment of the church. He tells them, he, he says, what's great about them is that they have but little power. Some of your versions of your Bible will say that they have little strength. But it says they have, he notes that they have little power. And yet they have kept God's word and they have not denied the name of Jesus. But the mark, what is valued most by Jesus in this this church is their weakness. Is the fact that they don't have power. And that's really helpful to me. I don't know about you, but it's really helpful to me. Because in the city that they were in, they were a seemingly insignificant body of believers. They were a seemingly insignificant group. Nothing noteworthy about these Christians. They would not be mentioned or featured in the top 100 fastest growing churches in Outreach Magazine every year. I imagine that their pastor was not the heavy hitter on the conference circuit and therefore they carried very little weight as evangelical influencers in their community. They had no books or Bible studies to sell. And I'm not against books and Bible studies, but I think in heaven, we're probably, we're probably not going to be familiar with a lot of the names of all of the heavy hitters in the kingdom of God. If Philadelphia is true, I think we'll know some names, but I think there's going to be so many, a vast number of names that we're unfamiliar with, that we're true heavy hitters in the kingdom of God. And we will embrace our brothers and sisters from Philadelphia, and we'll say, who are you? And they say, Church of Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Cool. Again, I'm not against that, and we'll be surprised to see, but, but Philadelphia was not like Laodicea, they did not appear uh, to have everything. And not, and, and not like uh, uh, Sardis appeared to be alive. They, they didn't have all the bells and the whistles and the, the shiny exterior that would draw the, uh, the masses. But what Philadelphia had was something that I want to hear and I want to have when everything is said and done about my life in Christ. When my, when my life and my ministry and my teaching and my pastoral work is finished, when I'm 
much older than this, hopefully, and gray, uh, more gray than this. I, I hope to hear that I've been seen as faithful and celebrated in weakness. I hope. Philadelphia is good news. I don't know about you, but it's, so good, it's such good news to me. Because it seems the smaller and weaker you feel, the more you shift dependency to God. And the more we see, apparently, that God shows up to strengthen you in your weakness. And so, what we're going to look at really quickly, because I, was, I'm, I have a little bit of a bet with my wife, I, if I can complete this sermon without a bunch of nonsense... Uh, um, real quick, six quick promises for a weak church. Uh, six strong promises for a weak church. And I got to credit Kevin DeYoung for that, that line and really the template for this teaching. Number one, first thing that we see from Jesus for this weak church is there at the beginning of verse eight, he, he tells, he promises that this, this weak church an open door that no one can shut. He promises them an open door that no one can shut. The text seems to be addressing both the believer's salvation and their sentness, or, their, their, or a missional emphasis. What does that mean? Well, in terms of the latter, some suggest that the open door refers to missionary possibilities for the people of God in Philadelphia. If you're familiar with Scripture, Paul, often when he referred to a new field of evangelistic opportunity, he often referred it to an open door has been revealed to me. You can read about that to the, the letter to the Corinthians and uh, the Colossians. And I find it really interesting, it's no coincidence for sure, that Philadelphia was actually Rome's um, the city of Philadelphia was Rome's strategic center for spreading Hellenistic culture. In other words, all the, all the Greek and Roman ideology was pouring out of this place. It was, it was a hub and, and channels for, for uh, dispensing that culture. I think it's, it's not a coincidence that this little tiny mighty church was strategically placed there. Because there, I believe, there's no doubt that the Lord was going to leverage that place for the people of God, so that the gospel could go out and reach uh, the masses, and, and in fact, it did. But as I mentioned earlier, the main thrust, I believe, of the open door is the imagery of salvation, because it's what all believers need to see and understand as we are more aware of our weakness. The open door is imagery for salvation. In Boxel, he writes this, and I think it kind of summarizes really beautifully what I'm getting at. He says in chapter 4, verse 1 of Revelation, the open door will provide John with privileged access to the heavenly throne room. And in fact, let me, let me read it for you really quick so you can get the imagery. But in chapter 4, verse 1, it's not on the screen, I'm sorry. But he says, after this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me was like a trumpet. Said, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. But that open door 
Ian Boxall writes that it's his privileged access to a heavenly throne, and with it is heavenly mysteries otherwise hidden to, uh, from him. The same privileged access is offered to the faithful Philadelphians, and indeed all who heed the words of this message, enabling them to see their own difficult situation from God's perspective. And that's so important, what we need in this life. And thus make sense of it. When one is privileged to glimpse through the open door, what originally appeared to be a defeat is transformed into a glorious vision of victory. In other words, John is seeing the thing that we all need to see is, in our weakness, God's strong hand in the midst of it. And the door that he opens to us, primarily of our salvation. In other words, you and I, if we have believed and embraced the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we have an open door to us that no man can shut. And that's really important because it's not a door that you can close with your foolishness. It's good news to me because I think I've had those thoughts. Oh, I've gone and done it now, Jesus. The door of salvation has officially been closed to me because I'm an idiot. But it's not the, this door does not hinge on my strength and my power. It hinges and it's held by the strength and the power of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And I, know, I don't know about you, that's terribly good news. Especially for those who know how weak we truly are. So know that. Philadelphia hears that. Anyone who understands the beauty of weakness, we, we hear that, we embrace that. That door is open, and no man can close it. And no, no, matter, no amount of sin can close it. If our sin be great, our Christ is greater. Number two, Jesus promises that uh, false Jews will actually fall at their feet. I'll read in verse 9 again. It says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. um, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I know that sounds really, really harsh, but it's not anti-Semitic language. Um, in, In fact, it's really important to remember that Jesus was Jewish, Actually, it was one of our, our church chants at uh, camp. Our, uh, our white team, we were, we were charged to, to have a, 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 a chant, our, our, your union kids. And with the help of their pastor and pastors, we, we came up with a, a, a chant, which was, Jesus uh, wasn't white, because we were the white team. So the, charge, the, the chant was, Jesus wasn't white, because he's Jewish. Jesus wasn't white. He um, he uh, brought he he gave the dark he gave the darkness light. What is it, girl? Gave the darkness light. Yeah. What's the next gave one? The blind sight. Gave the blind sight. His cross makes us right. Jesus wasn't white, right? That was that was our that was our church chant. I th- I think we had a strong second place at camp. It's really good. It's really good. Um, um, yeah, that, actually, that's, that, that came from the, the weird brain of John Wolfinger. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, Karen had the Jesus was white. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, about white stuff, yeah. Anyway, uh, you had to be at camp to get the whole scope of it. But anyway, again, I'm Marty off the rails. Um, so, but, it, but when you read that uh, Jesus is calling them a synagogue of Satan, it sounds anti-Semitic, but it's really important to remember that Jesus was Jewish and the church was made up at this time of primarily Jewish people. Um, and then if you remember recalling the teaching on the church of Smyrna, you have to remember that new religions were not allowed in the Roman Empire, and that Jews, perhaps from jealousy that Christianity was having rapid growth at the time, they were quick to point out the distinctions between Judaism and Christianity, and therefore Christians were now facing persecution because they would not submit to um, any institution other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's crazy, and I think we need to really pay attention when Jesus speaks and when he says even harsh things, because when he calls them a synagogue of Satan, he's saying this because they're doing the devil's works. In other words, they primarily have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and then they have subsequently started to harass the Philadelphian church. And Jesus is not supportive of this. There's more to be investigated around the language of what it means to be truly Jewish in the book of Romans, chapter 2 and chapter 9. But, it, but it's, it's important to remember that the true covenant is that, that God gave to Abraham is embraced by faith. And that is why we can be grafted into this big, beautiful family of God why us primarily Gentile audience can be embraced by the people of God, or as the people of God before God. So Jesus assures the people in Philadelphia that they will be vindicated, that they're, 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 them being harassed in their, in their city and in their culture, they're going to be vindicated by Jesus himself. And he tells them that, that the, the promises that were passed to Israel um, that, was, that would originally go to them and the Gentiles would be honoring them has now kind of been a, a bit of a role reversal. In fact, if you read Isaiah chapter 45, verse 14, you can kind of read God's promise to Israel which was uh, a promise where the Gentiles would be before them, kneeling before them, honoring them. It's a bit of a tables-have-turned uh, sort of situation. And what's crazy, it's, it's now these, Jesus, these Jewish people, to quote um, New Testament scholar William Mounts, um, he says, they will play the role of the heathen and acknowledge that the church is the Israel of God. And here's the thing. Are you, do you believe, do you firmly believe and embrace that God will bring justice and vindicate you in whatever plight you are facing? In your weakness, as it's being exploited, as your voice is being quelled, as your, as your presence is not being acknowledged, do you believe God will give you total vindication? And will you rest in that? Are you okay with waiting with that? In the current culture we live in today, Christians are certainly a, um, viewed as, um, let's just be bottom line, we are, we are, we are seen as a stupid creature, um, believing in a, in, a, in, a, in a crazy fantasy. 
Are you okay with embracing that, that label while you hold to the truth of the gospel? Are you okay with God vindicating you whenever he deems the time to be right? Will you embrace your weakness in this way? Because Philadelphia was not taking to their social media channels and, and, and shouting out all their angry opinions to the world. They were fully content with letting Jesus be their defense. And that's why they're special. That's why they're, they're powerful. Number three, if that wasn't interesting enough, Jesus says in verse 10, because you have kept my word about uh, patience and, patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Uh, the debate, according to this text, is does... Does Jesus mean that the church is to be delivered spiritually or physically? I bet if I took a poll, it'd be uh, interesting. Uh, never, uh, and I don't want to get bogged down in, in it. I, I was actually getting a little concerned as I was writing out notes, and I was like, I don't want to get bogged down in it. But I would want to give you a, a snapshot of G.K. Beale's commentary on, on the Greek text, so you can see just a snippet of perhaps an alternative view of what has perhaps uh, always been embraced by the majority, majority of modern evangelicals. And if, and if what I give you this morning, the little snapshot, is enticing, I can give you about three to five more pages to read through if you're interested on the, on the text, <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing. I, 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 that's, that's kind of what I love to do, but, you know, anyway... If this wets your whistle, I got, I got more, and John can put it out on the, on the uh, emails. But here's, here's, the, here's the thoughts. Some commentators have affirmed that the way in which Christ will protect believers from the coming tribulation of 310, which we just read, is by physically rapturing then, uh, them from earth into heaven. Uh, this is primarily argued on the basis that the that this best accords with the most logical and literal force of keep from. However, uh, Gundry has shown the improbability of this understanding by demonstrating parallels between uh, Revelation 3.10 and John 17.15, which is the only other New Testament occurrence of keep with from. And there, this is why it's so cool and compelling, there Christ prays, I ask not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Thus, Jesus denies a physical remo removal from tribulation and affirms a spiritual protection from the devil. In Proverbs 7, 5 and James 1, 27, has the same idea of protection from evil for those living in the midst of, of evil. I don't know, how many of you find that fascinating? I just, all I, all I know, I, I, there's, like I, I, like I said, I'll give you a lot of pages. You can read through them. They're really fun. But, um, but what I find fascinating is I love going to Scripture and letting the Scripture ultimately dictate and create tension that perhaps I don't even want to embrace. Right? Because who wants to suffer physically? Um, and I'm, just, I'm not saying that's a final statement on anything. It just certainly creates another question. And, and in these technical and, and really tricky 
portions of the text, it's really difficult for us to hammer down a solid answer. And that's my humble estimation of anything that is challenging in Scripture. So again, like I said, I didn't want to go off the rails too much, but I thought I'd throw a little theological uh, bomb off so you can, you know, wrestle with something a little bit. And that's the blessing. The blessing is, here's the thing that I know, the blessing is this. Jesus says, I'll keep you. That's all I'm really concerned with. I'm concerned with Jesus keeping me. Because however Jesus keeps me is going to be completely acceptable. Yes or no? Yeah? Okay. Just because I I didn't know for a second there. No, I'm I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm just getting excited. That's all. Um, Number four, Jesus promises that no one will seize their crown. In verse 11, at the end of verse 11, real quickly, what he's saying here is that the struggle, the struggle that we live in this life will, uh, the struggle will end with this weak church with them being on the winning side of things. The, the, the idea of this crown is a victor's crown. It's, it's victory. It's, we're meant to have uh, athletics and challenge and sport in mind. And, you know, the gold medal, the, the, the crown of, of achievement here. And what Jesus is saying is that this week, little churches' plight and their pilgrimage and, and the pain that they endure in life is going to end with them on the winning side of things. Being last over a lifetime puts them in pole position. In other words, they're going to be first for all eternity. Like I said, I love this vision of meeting brothers and sisters throughout all the ages and saying, who are these no-name people, people I didn't really know? And maybe they just say Church of Philadelphia, and we say, yeah, dang, that's pretty cool. Number five. Jesus promises we will be made a pillar in the temple of God. Uh, There in verse 12. And this is really cool because there's even a geological um, connection because Philadelphia was known for earthquakes. In fact, they they had an earthquake earlier that totally decimated the city and it had to be rebuilt according to uh, Tactus and Strabo and some of our ancient historians. And so for people who were constantly being literally shaken on the land, it was nice to know that God was going to finally settle everything. But I tell you this, in terms of, a, in spiritually, spiritual speaking terms, this promise is the most helpful to me. When I read this, um, I'm so thankful that that God is going to give me stability, stability that I don't have. Give me strength that I don't have. He's going to take this beat-up, tattered life, this life that I, I live now with a limp. God's going to give me perfect strength. He's strengthening And it will ultimately end in perfect strength. And I don't know about you, but how many of you wrestle with your weakness? How many of you hear how you are not cutting the mustard, right? How you are not quite there yet. I know some people think they're strong and nothing touches them. They're lying. They're lying. Um, 
But for those of us who realize and recognize our weakness and see where our dependency comes from, God is in an ever, ever, a never-ending process of booing our, 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 what is broken in us. And like I said, I walk through life with a limp. I know, I, I know not physically, but spiritually speaking, I'm a wounded heart, a wounded man. I cry every day. Every day. Every day I long for the kingdom. Every day I long for everything that's broken to be fixed. And one day, Jesus tells us it will. It will be. It will be such. What is broken will be mended, including me, this weak, wobbly, wonky dude who is limping through life, will one day be a stable, stable pillar in God's house. And what's cool is this wonky pieces are still stable pieces in his house today because Jesus is the one who stabilizes. So it's just all around really good news. I still think it's harder to teach Philadelphia, John. Yeah, I'm, I'm just joking. No, now I'm thinking it's I got the better deal. Yeah, so. But here's the thing. What, it, what I love what it talks about is it's, it's really about who do you say you are to yourself? Well, it, it gives us an an, an alternative perspective. It says, well, this is what Jesus says about you. This is how Jesus sees you. It doesn't matter how you say your, see yourself. Don't matter, it doesn't matter that you, like you have these moments, like I have these moments where we say, God's, the, the doors of salvation will close on me. I've gone and done it now. And God's saying, no, I, I, I hold the hinges on that door. I am the door. Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep, right? I mean, there's all these beautiful things coming at us, but God's saying, I know who you say you are, but here's who I am. And let that hold in your heart. Let that rest. Let that let you rest in your weakness. But you have to embrace weakness in the way of Christ, in the way of the kingdom. And I love, he wraps it up in, with six, the sixth idea is Jesus promises these people a threefold name. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, my own new name. What does that mean? Well, there's a lot. I, you, guys, you guys want some more pages? I could give you some more pages on that, Greek text on that. But um, I don't know. I just kind of summarize it in one little thought. It means ownership. Jesus owns you. Um, some of the be most beautiful imagery is out of Ephesians, where we are told we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're, we're sealed by God himself. And, and God's saying, in these variety of ways, I'm writing my name on you. And name means ownership. And the first thing I thought about was this guy I uh, used to go on Mexico mission trips with uh, years and years ago. His name was Vic Palladini. It's a name you can't forget. But Vic Palladini was part of our construction team and building homes in Mexico. And, and uh, he would always bring his, his tools, his tool belt, his tools, and all that stuff. And it was just hilarious. I would always laugh because you knew if you're using one of Vic's tools. Why? Because his name was inscribed on every single one of his items. So it was just hilarious. Every time I was working, I was like, oh, this is Vic's. Oh, this is Vic's. You know, this is Vic's. And you need to hold that in your heart. Jesus has written his name on you. You're his. So, so whatever negative self-talk you have, stop it. Stop it 
and embrace your creator, your owner, your master, your savior. But it really is, it really does kind of go back to that question. When it comes down to really seeing where our dependency lies, where do we really find ourselves resting and rooted? Do we say, Jesus, you're all I got and you're all I need? Or do we have this weird spiritual pride and weird ego that says, I can't let anybody see weakness in me. I've got to do it by myself. I can't ask for help. Well, those who can't ask for help remain helpless. But the kingdom language is so beautiful. It says when someone finally repents and surrender and lives an ongoing life of repentance and surrender, that person is truly strong. And we see this exactly with the tiny, weak, non-powerful church of Philadelphia. I don't know about you, but I think that's extraordinary. I think that's extraordinary. So, my friends, may we all follow in the footsteps of this tiny, faithful, weak little church. I know our lives seem mundane and insignificant. I know that sometimes we wonder if union is making an impact. I don't know. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I, I don't have a lot of those thoughts. But as we live this life, will we embrace the way of weakness? Will we embrace the way of trusting Jesus in the mundane? Will we, to quote Zach Eswine, will we, will we embrace the small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with Jesus? Will we not necessarily be caught up with notoriety and what it appears to be? Will we, will we, will we reject that and, and embrace just a quiet, simple, even weak-seeming life lived out before God? I don't know, after you read the Church of Philadelphia, it seems rather enticing, doesn't it? And, I guess to wrap it up in full, full circle, may we avoid the mistake of judging a book by its cover. May we not look at Christians and ministries and the move of God in the world and say, well, that's, that's not significant. Because what may seem insignificant to us may be extraordinary to Jesus. May we learn from Philadelphia and see, see the, the, the blessing of embracing this way. And may we learn, may we truly learn to, to assess God's church the way God assesses his church. I'll, I'll, close, I'll close with a question and a quote, and hope, hopefully I, was, I didn't you know, go too long. But here's a question. Guys, where are we truly drawing our strength from? Really? I mean, let's really pause. Pause. When I'm being honest, and, and, and I'm before the Lord, and, and, and I'm just being true, where do I really draw strength? Spirit, spiritually speaking, who is a sor- source of strength? Who's got this? Me or, me or Jesus? But you got to be honest about that. And then a quote. It's a quote I used a couple week, a few weeks ago, but it, but it's really been just burning in my head and heart because it it really summarizes what we're talking about. We need to remember, guys, what Jen Pollock Michelle says. 
What blazes up on Golgotha is God's embrace of contradiction. Weakness is power, foolishness is wisdom. Guys, that is our Jesus. Our Jesus, he is over everything, has all authority over all, and he, he embraces the way of humanity. He does it perfectly. He goes to death, and he doesn't do so um, railing on his accusers. In fact, he is silent, and when he does speak, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is always issuing reconciliation to a people who hate him. May we embrace the true power of the gospel in understanding that weakness is not weakness at all when it is charged by the power of God. So, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word and your grace over our lives and the goodness of your gospel. I I can't believe that we get to be uh, members of your body, that we get to be um, this tiny little movement of your kingdom here on earth. May we, Lord, as Peterson says, embrace our, our position, our, our place as a, as a colony of heaven in a country of death. May we embrace the life that you give as we Surrender to you in weakness, embracing your true, truest strength. God, continue to have your way, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.